This audio presentation is from the Rand Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. All right, good afternoon, and welcome to this call with the experts. I'm Jeff Heide, Director of Media Relations at Rand, uh, here with my colleague Leah Polk, who is Associate Director of Media Relations. And we are speaking with four of our Russia experts about the upcoming Biden Putin summit, which is their first. Uh, we've got Sam Sherup, who is a senior political scientist specializing in U.S. Russia relations. We have Todd Helmus, a senior behavioral scientist specializing in communications, disinformation, and terrorism. Uh, Dara Masako, a senior uh, policy researcher and former senior analyst for Russia military capabilities at the Pentagon. And we have Bill Courtney, who is director of the RAND Business Leaders Forum and adjunct senior fellow at RAND. He's also a retired U.S. ambassador. Let me just start uh, with a, a quick round robin. If you all could each mention one thing that you think is likely to come up at the summit or that should be raised at the summit and uh, what might come of it. Todd, I'll start with you. Thanks. I'd say two uh, two important things that will that I'm sure President Biden will be raising uh, relates to election interference and continued disinformation regarding COVID-19 vaccines. Um, the intelligence community assessed recently in March that Russia did in fact attempt to interfere with the U.S. elections in part by feeding proxy uh, information, derogatory information about Biden and his son to uh, uh, to the Trump campaign and trying to sow that information through the um, through the media media ecosystem here in the United States. And uh, we also know that Russia was engaged in an online social media campaign on an attempt to influence that election. So surely Biden will be raising this with Putin. Uh, and on top of that, Russia has been recently engaged in a disinformation campaign attempting to weaken U.S. support, uh, U.S. belief in the COVID-19 vaccines, particularly vaccines by Pfizer, but also Moderna. Given the need for the U.S. to be engaging, uh, getting these vaccines out uh, into arms as much as possible, you know, it represents a potential real threat domestically. Excellent. How about Sam? Thanks, Jeff. So I think one thing we can be pretty sure that will result from the summit is the beginning of a new round of arms control and strategic stability talks. There haven't been any serious arms control talks for a decade now. And although President Biden, um, along with President Putin, extended the um, currently single existing strategic arms control agreement uh, between the U.S. and Russia, the New START agreement, for five years in his first week in office, after that five years is up in 2026, there will be nothing remaining. So I think we need to begin a process now of trying to understand what the next agreement would look like. And there's an assumption, I think, that the next agreement will deal with kinds of weapons and uh, different types of both, you know, nuclear weapons and uh, related capabilities that haven't been the subject of previous negotiations. And therefore, it's going to take a broader discussion about strategic stability between the two sides on a working level for you know, months, if not years, to, to reach a mutual understanding about where to move, how to move forward on that. All right, that sounds easy enough. Dara? I think there are several items that will probably make their way to the top of the summit list. 
um, not least of all, which the United States and Russia have to coordinate in some, some manner on continuing the conflict in Syria, Libya, and Ukraine. Um, with respect to Syria and Libya, we have NATO allies who are also um, supporting various aspects of those, that particular conflict. We need to have some kind of discussion for that. Um, secondly, I think given President Biden's affirmation for Ukraine's territorial integrity and supporting their aspirations um, with Europe, uh, I, I suspect Ukraine will be a large topic of conversation. I think not least of all, this spring's earlier military event where Russia marshaled anywhere between 60,000 to um, some estimates claim up to 100,000 personnel along the border. Um, they claimed that it was a military exercise, but it was highly unusual. It was highly coercive. I think it was in some ways a reminder of who holds the cards in that particular region. I think it's Russia's way of signaling asymmetrically um, to the United States and to NATO, if you support, if you support Ukraine, um, improve their military capabilities, provide them with advanced equipment, we have ways of showing you that we still maintain the regional advantage there. So it's a, it's a very tense situation. I, I suspect it will, will come up. And then finally, Russia, Russia uses the levers that it can to stay in the headlines. And a lever that it frequently uses is, is military announcements, military shows of force and resolve. A recent announcement was made by the Russian military that they would be creating 20 new units and they would be stationing them by the end of this year near NATO. Now, they weren't exactly specific in what they were creating, so I don't think that we should automatically jump to 20 new you know, ground forces or you know tank-based units. These could be anything from Air Force units to signals units. There's just not a lot of clarity there. It was a statement designed to generate headlines. But nevertheless, when Russia does say these kind of things, they tend to jump to the top of our NATO allies' priorities. So some additional clarification on that point, I think, would be very helpful. Great. Thanks, Tara. Bill? A neuralgic issue for Russia is the closure of diplomatic facilities. After election interference in 2016, uh, President Obama uh, closed two uh, what the Russians call dachas, their large estates, uh, in Long Island and uh, Eastern Maryland, uh, which were used as vacation estates, but also, as President Obama pointed out, being used for intelligence purposes. Uh, the estate in Eastern Maryland is across the water from National Security Agency. The estate in Long Island is uh, across the water from the submarine base at New London, uh, Connecticut. Uh, but then when President Trump came in, the Russians expected that relations would get a lot better Instead, after the poisoning of uh, Sergei Skripal with a banned chemical weapon agent and some other issues, including frustrations uh, with cyber attacks, uh, President Trump uh, closed the uh, Russian consulate in Seattle, Washington, which was overlooking a, a large naval facility there. Uh, then there were further um, concerns about other activities and expulsions of diplomats. So then President Trump closed the Russian consulate in San Francisco, which overlooks Silicon Valley. And both of those consulates, not coincidentally, were located on uh, high hills. Uh, so the Russians since then, Sergei Lavrov, the foreign minister especially, have been pressing uh, to have those restored. Uh, the Russians are keen on this 
in part because of intelligence, maybe the main part because of intelligence. But for the same reason, the Congress and probably the FBI will be reluctant to have those consulates uh, returned. The United States has had to close some consulates in Russia, but it doesn't see really a, a major need to reopen those consulates because contacts between Russia and the United States are so little, tourism is so modest, business is not very large. So the U.S. feels it doesn't really need those consulates. As a result, the Russians have less leverage to press for reopening of their consulates. But we can be sure that Sergei Lavrov will uh, make this a high priority and President Putin will as well. All right, so that's four plus uh, items likely to come up. Diplomatic, uh, the closure of diplomatic facilities, uh, Russian military posturing, uh, particularly uh, how Russia's using its levers of power. Uh, Todd uh, talked about disinformation. Sam talked about the arms control and the strategic stability agenda. First off, just sticking with those four, how, how do you think, uh, how do you all think Biden is likely to prioritize these? Sam? I, w- I think that we know for sure that uh, there's going to be a strategic, well, not for sure, but I think it's uh, both sides have signaled pretty directly that strategic stability will be on the agenda for the summit and that the process at the working level is very likely to begin as a result of whatever mandate the president's issue. Um, and, you know, you can think about summits in in terms of arms control and strategic stability in two different ways. Either there's a summit at the conclusion of a process to sort of essentially mark its end and, and have a signing ceremony or one at the beginning where leaders give a mandate to give mandates to their negotiating teams to to sit down and begin the process. And I think that's where we are. Clearly there hasn't been enough time since Biden took office to actually come up with an agreement to sign. So it'll be, you know, beginning a conversation at the leader level and giving a clear set of instructions or at least the green light to begin um, talks. And actually, maybe I think the on the diplomatic facilities front, I, I could imagine that there's a there's I agree with Bill in terms of the relative value of the respective consulates, but the Russians have uh, created a bit of leverage in recent months in response to the U.S. sanctions um, in April. They have essentially said that by August they will ban Russians, locally employed staff from working at the, even the U.S. Embassy in Moscow. And if that were to happen, that would essentially completely cripple um, the operations of, of the embassy. So I think they've given themselves some trade space there because the U.S. is going to want to be able to keep employing locally employed staff. And uh, I wouldn't be surprised if that, at least some arrangement that perhaps not restores all Russian facilities, but some, the U.S. gives something to get that provision suspended or, or reversed, um, because otherwise we're really going to have a situation where the embassy in Moscow is just operating a sort of skeleton kind of crew. On top of that, also, we should note that the ambassadors themselves have been recalled to capitals at the moment. So neither the Russian ambassador president in Washington nor the U.S. ambassador in Moscow. And um, this has occurred in the last few months. That is, and I could imagine a sort of relatively easy and um, symbolic deliverable being their return to the embassies in the respective capitals. (laughs) 
Who else wants to weigh in here? What, what one would uh, would expect the ambassadors uh, to return. Typically, the trade space for diplomatic employees involves diplomatic employees at both locations. The U.S. Embassy is already operating at a skeletal uh, level now, and I'm not sure there are any expectations that uh, Russian employees will be able to come back to work there because the climate is really uh, so tense. Uh, so the trade space for consulates tends to be consulates on the other side. Now, let me give you an example of how our need for consulates has diminished. St. Petersburg was our second consulate and our uh, largest in many senses. There used to be a lot of American tourists there. But with relations being very difficult now, the only American tourists tend to be uh, those on cruise ships, and they move together in groups, and so they don't get out and get, get lost, if you will. Uh, the top priority for an American consulate is to protect the interests of Americans. Well, there's just fewer Americans now in the St. Petersburg area uh, to protect. So this is uh, one example of how our need for consulates has just gone down. I'll say on the disinformation side, I don't know what, what Biden will raise first. I do know that in his first phone call with Putin, he raised election interference. Uh, that was back in late January and uh, uh, in April, just last month, just the other month, the, issue, the U.S. issued a series of sanctions uh, in response to uh, Russian in, uh, election interference, but also the solar winds attack. Um, so uh, I don't know what will go first, but I would imagine that Russia is very interested in talking about those sanctions. And I would imagine Biden is interested in uh, uh, reinforcing the message that those sanctions were intended to convey. Sarah, anything from you on uh prioritization? Which of these are likely to come first? Well, I, I would be interested in what our NATO allies are, are hoping um, that President Biden would raise with Putin. I, I would imagine of the, the things that I mentioned, um, they would like to seek some more clarification on Russian force posture development, um, particularly in Northeastern Europe. And, and just, you know, pinging back to the strategic stability conversation, there are so few mechanisms left at this point by which both sides notify one another about military units moving around or rebasing um, with our essentially collapse in the arms control architecture. Um, that's not really working for any parties present. So I would say that there are so many forces driving us towards some type of new understanding, but our relationships are, are, are pretty poisonous at this point. So I'm not sure how far that conversation will go in this initial summit, um, but it's worth talking about not least of all which, because Russia and the United States both are developing and will potentially be fielding intermediate range ground-based systems in Europe um, and the Asia Pacific in the next potentially three to five years. So now is now is really the time to lay that diplomatic groundwork for impacts on strategic stability. It sounds like this is really a chance. Uh, I mean, we're, we're all speculating here about what the topics will be and what the prioritization will be. It sounds like it's uh, just an opportunity to, uh, to to set the agenda uh, in essence. But obviously, there are things that ought to be covered, but it's also just rebuilding, resetting a relationship. Is that fair? I think it is. I mean, the uh, communication has become pretty dysfunctional at all levels in U.S.-Russia relations, including at the very top. And I don't think that serves anyone's purposes. I mean, the way the Biden administration has been talking about the importance of communicating, including at the highest levels, is really about, it's a means of advancing U.S. interests. So uh, the fact that we hadn't had, you know, either at the leader level or at the working level, the kind of regular dialogue that can, you know, help avoid misunderstandings and 
potentially minimize the prospect for unintended conflict, you know, was a problem. And I think that this could, you know, open up the space for more of those contacts. Well, let me mention Belarus. Um, there was a Senate Foreign Relations uh, Committee hearing this morning. Uh, U.S. Ambassador Julie uh, Fisher spoke, and then Svetlana Tikhonivskaya, the wife of the imprisoned uh, activist who had hoped to run for President of Belarus, and, and she ran in his stead after he was arrested. Uh, she uh, testified from uh, Prague. The strong bipartisan support so uh, Chairman Menendez, Ranking Member uh, Risch, they could have given each other statements. Strong bipartisan support for the opposition uh, in Belarus. The desire to have more sanctions on Belarus. Chairman Menendez uh, pressed Ambassador Fisher, when is there going to be a new executive order outlining more scope uh, for sanctions? Uh, she said the interagency was working hard on this. And, uh, it would be done as quickly as it, it could be. Uh, so Belarus is is another one of these issues in U.S.-Russian relations that has drawn bipartisan support, as a number of issues in the past have, for example, Syria. Belarus, though, is a little bit different from Ukraine. Ukraine also has bipartisan support. But with Belarus, uh, the U.S. hasn't had much contact with Belarus over the uh, nearly 30 years of independence, whereas it's had a lot of contact uh, with Ukraine, including uh, involvement of a large diaspora here in the United States. So the United States posture with regard to Belarus is likely to be uh, to continue to support the opposition, but let the Europeans take most of the lead on that because Belarus is part of the Eastern Partnership of the European Union. A number of European Union uh, states are close by or some other even border on uh, Belarus. Uh, so I think this is an area where when President Biden is talking at the NATO and also at the EU summit, uh, there may be a fair amount of discussion on Belarus, but President Biden is likely not to want to steal Europe's thunder in dealing with Belarus, but to stay in, in uh, sync with it. What's the big issue with, I mean, with Belarus, is the Ryanair incident uh, likely to be raised? And also, is this, uh, I, I presume, when you, when you say Belarus is important, uh, also, just keeping it from becoming part of Russia again, is that uh, important here? Uh, yes, uh, it is important. Uh, now, the International Civil Aviation Organization, ARCAL, is doing an investigation of the Ryanair uh, incident, and uh, the results of that will uh, have some impact on Western policy. Uh, but again, this is really more uh, of an issue for Europeans uh, to lead on. The flight uh, took off uh, from Greece. Uh, was going to another European Union member in Lithuania. I think the flight may have been, or the airplane may have been registered in Poland or something like that. So this is really a, an issue that's most appropriate for Europe uh, to take the lead. You know, in the context of U.S.-Russia relations, uh, Jeff, the, the challenge is that it's, this is not, I mean, Belarus specifically, Russia's uh, other neighbors more broadly, it's not an issue where we have a track record of having... Uh, a constructive dialogue, so to speak, uh, at the bilateral U.S.-Russia level. Um, in fact, quite the opposite. You know, I, you, one could imagine the the incident, and given Russia's influence over Belarus, um, coming up in the context of the of the bilateral summit. But like, it's hard to imagine much by way of concrete progress in the U.S.-Russia bilateral context vis-a-vis -vis Belarus. Of course, Biden will be meeting with European leaders in the days before the U.S.-Russia summit, which 
during which I expect that um, the Belarus issue will be discussed um, and, and perhaps some steps forward agreed. On Navalny, we haven't uh, yeah. spoken much about him. Well, this is also, so this is also an issue where the Europeans have taken the lead, and Chancellor Merkel in particular. You know, when Navalny was uh, flown out to Germany for treatment, uh, Chancellor Merkel visited him in the hospital, uh, showing how important she attached uh, uh, important she attached to to his uh, health and safety. Uh, so the Europeans have been very strong on uh, impressing the Russians. Uh, about Navalny to assure that his health. And I think the Kremlin was uh, became concerned that if Navalny were to have died in prison, uh, certainly, you know, seemed like he was possibly at risk of dying a few weeks ago, that this would have caused uh, Biden to cancel a summit. The uh, Europeans may have canceled some things themselves. Uh, so this is an issue that's important, but it's an important issue for Europe and America um, to work together on and, and for Europe to take the lead. And I think still Chancellor Merkel is, is really taking a very responsible uh, lead on this and uh, helping to pull together uh, Europe. I would just add that there are two um, aspects of the, of, the, of the issue. One is the chemical weapons piece, um, given that he was poisoned with a chemical weapon, uh, and the uh, there's uh, related sanctions that were invoked um, in the first uh, weeks, and maybe maybe months, maybe if not weeks of of Biden being in office uh, related to that incident. Um, there's a U.S. law that sort of prescribes a certain set of actions if um, uh, another state is found to have used chemical weapons uh, and. There's a, also then a sort of six-month period uh, after which there's uh, essentially another round that, unless a waiver is issued, um, has to be considered. So that, I think, will could potentially come up. Um, but the broader question about uh, domestic political repression in Russia, of which Navalny's you know, imprisonment after he returned to Russia following his treatment for the chemical weapons poisoning is a part is a really tough nut to crack. And I'm not sure that we have, you know, I, I, I can't imagine that it won't be raised. And certainly Biden will say something about human rights and democracy in, in public, but whether or not we have um, either even a concrete ask or the expectation, even if there is one that Putin will give on that uh, issue, because, you know, of course, regime survival is paramount uh, for him, Putin, that is. And uh, I think he sees Navalny as a threat to that. And, you know, there's also the question of whether too close an association with the U.S. Uh, is to Navalny's benefit. So, you know, painting him as a puppet of the West is something that Putin does pretty regularly. How Biden plays that, it's going to be a tightrope, both in, in private and in public. I would agree that is this is a delicate issue. So typically in the past, uh, the U.S. has emphasized human rights uh, much more so than democracy because there are international agreements on human rights, including the Helsinki Final Act, to which uh, Russia uh, is a party. Uh, so uh, it would not be beyond expectation that there could be some private requests uh, for um on behalf of certain imprisoned people uh, in a human rights context. So I don't think Biden's 
uh, main argument will be that Russia is not developing democratically. Uh, it's rather uh, human rights abuses, and those uh, are uh, issues which are very important for U.S. Congress. Again, bipartisan interest in uh, respect for human rights in Russia and uh, other countries uh, there. So he'll, he'll definitely raise those issues. But in the Soviet days, in the Cold War, the U.S. presidents would sometimes privately raise and ask for specific prisoners to be released, such as Sharansky, uh, for example, President Reagan did. Uh, relations are so bad now, and more people are being arrested uh, in Russia, uh, labeled as extremists or terrorists under new draconian law. And it's possible that we may go back to the Cold War practice of asking uh, for U.S. president to ask for a specific release of specific prisoners. Like Navalny. Potentially. Uh, not not Devani, but more human human rights uh, mm-hmm. cases of clear human rights abuses. Now, certainly, President Biden could emphasize the importance of you know treating Navalny um, you know, without abusing his human rights. But uh, but there are other cases as well. Uh, for example, Russians are putting some people in psychiatric uh, treatment. Dara, you mentioned uh, how there had been the uh, announcement of uh, deployment of an additional 20 military units on the NATO border. Uh, presumably hasn't happened yet, but something uh, they said would happen by, by year end. What, what do you make in general of the signals that uh, Russia is, is sending and, and what their military posture looks like ahead of the summer? Well, so we have some hints that Russia is going to be revising its national security strategy in the near term. They've already submitted a new draft to the Kremlin for consideration. Um, that is that effort is being headed up by Nikolai Patrushev. He's an uber hawk. He's the hockiest of the hawks um, in Russia. But about that, he indicated that Russia would begin pushing back more forcefully, asymmetrically and symmetrically against um attempts to further injure its economy with sanctions, further efforts to coerce or intimidate Russia with military um, with military assets, um, be it United States or NATO collectively. Um, he's also said and hinted that that new document will contain um, a revised threat assessment of NATO in the United States. There's not too much in it yet, so I'm, I'm really interested to see what, what that will look like. I think that could come in the next few months at, at the most. I don't think they would time something like that right before the summit, but in years past, Russia has done plenty of flashy things <laughs> in advance of these, uh, these summits, like uh, very large military deployments, uh, deploying them near the United States, so that's always a possibility for this one, too. We still have um, another um, several days, something exciting could happen. Um, but there's there's one thing that is on my wish list for Biden to raise with Putin. I don't think that he maybe necessarily will. That's probably maybe not at his level. But I think our allies would appreciate it, and certainly we would as well. Um, and that is uh, the Russian intelligence services really breaking a lot of norms with their behaviors over the last several years. Now, we've held Russia to account in many of those ways. Um, For example, the Novichok incident in the UK, there was significant sanctions and diplomatic expulsions after that event. Um, But there have been um, several other events that have really um, kind of crossed a a lot of threshold, even in your traditional spy versus spy kind of conflict. And I, I think raising some of those things directly 
would be of use. Um, Putin is a former KGB man. He once famously said there actually is no such thing as a former KGB man. Um, so that part of his identity is uh, still very important. Um, I do not think, however, that it's worth um, raising presidentially the number of Russian spy networks that have recently been wrapped up in NATO countries, um, in Bulgaria and a few others. That's normal day-to-day spy business. They do it. We do it. That's probably not worth communicating. In fact, it might even be a little hypocritical to do so. But for those specific events where they're using biological agents or the Belarusian KGB is um, engaging in air, air piracy, these kind of norm-breaking events really need to be called out specifically. Norm-breaking events. One other one that comes to mind and also goes to the question we've talked about regarding uh, diplomatic facilities is apparent microwave attacks or some kind of unusual attacks on U.S. government personnel, particularly embassy personnel. Is that likely to come up or not? I hope so. I hope that it comes up because those are those are our people. And, you know, I know there's a lot of ambiguity um, about this and who could be responsible, what is actually causing these events. Um, But it can't be denied that people are suffering permanent health effects uh, from something that's going on in multiple parts of the world, multiple embassies. Um, and, and there's a very few handful of individual uh, nation states that are um, willing to do something like that. So I, that is a norm-breaking event. I do think it needs to be specifically called out. Like This is unacceptable, and it, it should not happen again. Does anyone else want to weigh in on these attacks? In the late 1970s, uh, there were similar uh, microwave-related uh, attacks on our embassy in Moscow. Uh, as Dara mentioned, there was always a lot of ambiguity uh, about it, but a number of our employees feel they had health problems. And there was a lot of investigation uh, about it, uh, including health effects, but I'm not sure that it came to a clear conclusion. Then in the early 1980s, the Soviets followed up with uh, an attack of a a tracking agent, uh, kind of a dust that's applied to a person's hand, uh, you know, as if you go into a nightclub and you they give you some purple thing on your wrist or something to identify you. And it appeared that the KGB wanted to see which dissidents diplomatic personnel were meeting with. Uh, and it turned out that uh, while it was not carcinogenic, it was mutagenic. And so that caused uh, a big concern. So in the past, you know, Moscow has use some unusual methods like this against uh, diplomats. But again, to emphasize Dara's point, there's a certain amount of ambiguity uh, about this, but it's a very serious uh, issue. And if some of that ambiguity gets cleared up, I would imagine the U.S. would give that a higher priority in diplomatic engagement. Todd, you mentioned that interference, disinformation is likely to be addressed in some fashion. What what about uh, disinformation around anti-vaccine material. Is that a likely topic? I would I would imagine so. The State Department recently put out a major advisory on this issue. Uh, there are several Russian uh, front news organizations, uh, such as Newsfront, that are putting out um, a lot of content that are attacking uh, U.S.-made vaccines, um, highlighting their ineffectiveness and their safety and risk profiles. 
um, and omitting a lot of contradictory information. So Russia's really uh, bent on doing this. They're doing this fairly considerably, partly to, I think, sow dissension in the U.S., um, but also to raise the value of their of their uh, of their own vaccines. You know, I'm not sure how much traction a lot of this propaganda content is making in the U.S. They can't put it out on social media um, because these front organizations have been essentially banned from Facebook and Google. But um, but it is making the rounds to some extent. And um, so I would imagine that it, if, if the president is going to be raising election interference and disinformation in general, then the uh, the vaccine issue will make a make it on the page. All right. Our time's about up. How about we do one last round, Robin? Uh, I'll go around. I'll start with uh, Sam. Any last thoughts from you? Well, I guess just to say that uh, the administration has framed the, uh, their objective going into this as um, achieving a stable and uh, predictable relationship with Russia. We should acknowledge that that is a uh, admirable goal. It's modest, but nonetheless, it's going to be extremely challenging to achieve. So I think we should see this event as one that could be begin a process that um, potentially gets us to that place. But it would require, you know, some pretty significant changes in um, in Russian behavior uh, to uh, to get us there. Um, and it's unclear, you know, whether in the end that'll happen. But uh, it's certainly worth a try, given the challenges that um, Russia has posed to U.S. interests in recent years. Um, in some ways, I think this summit can be um, slightly more productive than than others in the past when you've had a very experienced Russian side. Uh, many of those individuals have been in the position now for 20 years. Um, President Biden is not new um, to this. He is not new to corresponding with President Putin. This is not too experienced or on unequal footing um, individuals experience-wise. So I'm hoping that they can cut directly to the chase and uh, quickly and, and get down to some of these complex issues. Todd? I think, obviously, the, I think Biden will be raising issues related to election interference and disinformation and, 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 and vaccine information, uh, as well as solar winds and, and, and other issues like that. I think the challenge is how the president goes beyond uh, merely saying that he's drawing a red line or you can't do this anymore or we're doing zero tolerance. Um, ultimately, in these things, there needs to be some form, form of carrot and stick policy, some sort of articulation of consequences if Russia overpasses some sort of red or pink or um, some related color line. So I don't know if the president's willing to have that in his pocket, but I think it's something that the uh, national security establishment has to be able to establish and then communicate fairly forcefully. Thanks. Uh, Bill, want to wrap us up? I would agree with Sam that uh, stable and predictable, uh, the two words the Biden administration has used, stable and predictable is a pretty modest goal. But I also think uh, it's an inaccurate representation of the Biden administration's policy. If you look at the things that Biden has said since he's become president and even before, human rights come up almost uh, almost every time in whatever he says. Uh, and so if you're if your goal is a stable and predictable relationship, of course, you wouldn't raise human rights because pressing human rights is likely to make the relationship less stable and less predictable. But presidents in the past thought that was a, a, a risk or cost uh, worth bearing, and President Biden 
seems to be doing that now. So I think his uh, Biden's real goal is uh, stable and predictable, and if you will, uh, uh, a relationship that is a bit more honest and, and more open, and one in which the U.S. can use the moral authority of democratic countries to help to help improve. Uh, let's say, the position of the United States and the West in dealing with Russia. Now, I'm not saying improving relations with Russia because that may not be possible given Russia's policies on you know, Ukraine and cyber attacks and other things, but to improve the West's position. Uh, so we see, um, we see Chancellor Merkel, President Macron, uh, Boris Johnson and Great Britain uh, all giving some priority to human rights. And so I would expect that will continue and that we will see greater Western pressure on on Russia in part because the internal crackdown in Russia that seems to have accelerated now in the last couple of months uh, is making the Kremlin more exposed uh, to the potential for Western criticisms on human rights. Great. Thanks, Bill. And Todd and Dara and Sam. Let's uh, touch base in a week and see if our predictions resolve as we, as we predicted. We'll leave it there. Uh, thanks for your time. Thanks, thanks for Jeff. having us, Jeff. Appreciate it. Thank you. This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about these issues and to explore RAND's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries.